Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, we have another live Q&A session, and this week's Q&A session is about planning, scheduling, and the CMMS. Our expert panelists are George Williams, Cliff Williams, James Kovacevic, Stuart Ferguson, and Joe Schmidt. Really, really got a lot of value out of this one, so I hope you enjoy this one. If your company sells products or services to engage reliability professionals, I've rolled out some new advertising packages for the live webinar series, so definitely tell your marketing manager about Rob's Reliability Project. And if they're interested in learning more about that, send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Lastly, sign up for my newsletter at robsreliability.com and follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn for the best memes in the industry. Thanks for listening. And now let's get into the live Q&A. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. We're, we're hosting a, this is the fourth Q&A webinar. Today, we're going to be talking about planning, scheduling, CMMS. And as we talked about a little bit just a few minutes ago, we have some special guests on. We got George Williams from Reliability X. We got Cliff Williams from People and Processes. We got James Kovacevic from Eruditio. We got Joe Schmidt from Upkeep. And we got Stuart Ferguson from Fix Software. First off, guys, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for of course. Having me. Thanks. Awesome. So the first question, Bob actually submitted this question. So we'll go around the horn here. And the question is, what is Cliff Williams' favorite beer? So, Cliff, what's your favorite beer? <laughs> uh, uh, don't, the, say, the, don't, don't say wet. No, no, the next one. It's the next one. That's my favorite beer. <laughs> <laughs> so, George, what's yours? What's your favorite uh, beer? Uh, so, right now, I'm I, right now Spotton's on tap, but um, but my last keg was Lagunitas IPA, and I think that's really good. I like that a lot. Awesome. James, how about you? Uh, I found an IPA by a local brewery, Lake of Base Brewing, just north of Toronto. They got an off-the-grid hazy IPA, which is my current favorite. Awesome. Stuart? I've, uh, I've tried that IPA. It's excellent. Uh, but I'm on a porter kick right now. Something, something deep, dark, and stout is, seems to be wetting the whistle. <laughs> Joe, how about you? Yeah, uh, when I could go outside, uh, I would be, always go for more of the craft IPAs. Uh, nothing specific, but very more like local side. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you, I'll give you two. So I have, I have one that I think you can really only find George in your neck of the woods. It's a like the Linen Kugel Sunset Wheat. It's a pretty cool one. It's it has a, it finishes like Fruit Loops, and once you hear that, you'll never you'll never unhear it. Um, and then I'm drinking one now out of, out of Edmonton. It's a, it's called the jerk face. It's pretty cool too. So yeah. Rob, Rob, I don't know if you saw it, but I think you should cut Andy off because Andy suggested that everyone's favorite should be Corona. (laughs) You must be, it must be with a lime, right? Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, let's, let's get into the, let's get into it. So one of the questions we got submitted And this one, the reason I bumped this one up to the front is I think that this is a common question that we get a lot. And basically it's how do we sell planning and scheduling to our organization? Cliff, do you want to kick us off with your thoughts? Sure. Um, And and I have a kind of sideways answer as I always do. And (laughs) um, it really, uh, the, the selling of it is, I won't say it's an easy task, but uh, I'm sure we can expand on on how we can do that. But the whole idea is having an organization that is actually ready to buy, um, is ready to look for it. And and an example I give is that, you know, you you have an organization and you have a work order that's closed out. It says on that work order that, you know, tradesmen spent four hours on the job. Okay, so we use that as our uh, starting point, four hours on the job, off we go and everything. The reality is that he spent 30 minutes waiting to get a permit. He spent 25 minutes at stores. He spent an hour 
actually refitting parts to make them all fit together because they weren't kitted. And, you know, so out of that four hours, it was an effective time of really two hours. The problem is that most organizations don't go to that depth. They don't have that discipline. And then some organizations actually don't like that because it makes them seem ineffective. And so they'll, they'll stick with the four hours and, and they'll run with it. So having an organization that is prepared to you know, have the discipline and, and dig deeper and look for those things that will give them the ammunition to sell planning and scheduling, that's the first part. And usually the hardest part, um, because if we don't do that sales pitch and we don't have what we you know, consider a cultural shift, is that we can get planning and scheduling all really nicely done and have our people with our systems and we don't make progress because the rest of the organization hasn't bought in. But I'm sure George can tell us how else we can do that. <laughs> George, how about you? What do you think? Yeah, so, so for me, it's really, there's two pieces to it. So Cliff's absolutely right. You've got to understand what generally speaking, your wrench time is, you know, and if you look at industry averages, you see numbers anywhere from 25 to 35%. And, and even if you look at 35%, you have three people at 35%, they're getting, getting done the work of about one full-time employee, 1.05. And, and if you can take one out and make them a planner, they get no field work done. But if they can increase the wrench time to 55%, you actually get more work done. So you could turn one of every three into a planner and be able and be effective. Even cool technology. Yeah, if it works. <laughs> <laughs> it's not liking me. Yeah. So even if you if you take a group that has 10 and take one out, it's even even easier, right? You can go from essentially three and a half full-time employees to five full-time employees taking one out and making them a planner. Just by increasing you know, only a little bit, you get 3.6, you get them to 55%, um, and you're essentially adding one and a half full-time employees for every 10. So it's, it's really simple math, um, and, and it's effective. And, and you know, the whole goal, as Cliff is mentioning, is to reduce the waste of time. And I think, you know, when we talk about where that is from a planning perspective, it's not in a job plan. It's in trips to the storeroom, trips back and forth to jobs. And, and we've got to shift the focus of everyday planning away from the job plan and more to the waste. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more, George. I think that, I mean, I think I've seen it numerous times, even I think we're doing it now is people focus on, like the accuracy of the job plan. I've even like what, what some of the people I work with right now are focused on are basically the accuracy of the time estimate. And I always like, I kind of laugh cause I don't think it's that valuable in a way. Like, you know, if you're trying to align a pump, it can take you 10 minutes. It could take you two hours. Right. And so it's like, that's less of a concern to me than, than really just making sure the, the parts are kitted and everything's ready to rock and roll. What do you think about that? That's a hundred percent correct. That's if you focus in that space, you'll be an effective planner. Yeah. So we got a question in the chat here and the question is how does a planner decide how much detail to put into a work plan for the work order? James, do you have any thoughts on that? You know what? That is an interesting topic. Um, because I spoke with Jeff Shiver on that very topic this morning, um, recording a podcast. So I think it's a very relevant, relevant question. And, you know, there's a lot of different takes on that, of what is the right level of detail. Um, you know, some believe that you have to have every single step, every single piece of information in there. Others believe that, you know what, we hire skilled people, and we just got to put in enough to get them to do it consistently. I, th I think there's a balance we got to strike you know, we got to write to the level of people that are in our maintenance group. But, you know, talking with Jeff this morning about that same thing, he made me think a little bit different about it. Um, it's not just our current maintenance crew. It's also what is our future maintenance crew. Yeah. So if we have a high level of retirees that, that's coming in, we need to be plan writing those job plans for, at a level of detail that will support the apprentices, the newer people coming in. At a minimum, I say we got to provide the specifications. 
So I always like using that three T methodology for specifications. What is the target? What is the tolerance? What is the test or verification that they're doing to make sure they achieve those? Um, so I say at a minimum, we have to have that and we have to have a sequence of steps. So if we're doing an activity and we have an issue out in startup or a premature failure, we can go back and see where did this procedure break down? Now, that's going to evolve with time from feedback from the craftspeople, from other planners, that type of thing. But I think at a minimum, a basic procedure with those specifications is a starting point. Then we evolve it from there. Yeah, I love it. I, I think it's a great point, actually, that Jeff makes is, is that, you know, you do have to plan for the future because there is, you know, if you can capture that expertise in the work orders now or in the job plan now, you're going to be, you're going to be way better off than, uh, Sorry, Dale asked, what were the three T's again, James, if you, have, if you want to just say it yep. again. Absolutely. So target. So if we're talking about torquing, what's the foot pounds that we have to torque to? Tolerance. What's the acceptable tolerance? Is it plus or minus 10% or minus zero plus 10%? And then what is the test or verification? So usually that's having them record what the actual value was. So target, tolerance, test. Awesome. So I, we got a few questions about CMMS in the chat. Now I won't, I won't ask you the direct question because I know both of your organizations sell a CMMS. So asking you whether Maximo or SAP is better, uh, is probably not what you want to answer. But what we have is one, one question we got submitted before, what are the top three features or capabilities a CMMS should support? Joe, do you want to kick us off on that question? Yeah, definitely. So great question. So I mean, outside of the ability to have some sort of like preventative maintenance automation in regards to recurring schedule, I think is today kind of just default of any CMMS system. Um, I think the other things is for, for our planners, just visibility, being able to see at a, at a high level and an in-depth level, uh, the activities that are happening across the teams in order to have that charted out to make it pivots and, and adjustments as, as we go through. Uh, the other part is having the ability to have a clear understanding and management between the parts uh, department or the parts crib so we can make sure that we have everything and that information is then being communicated to the technicians or maybe we actually need to reorder it. Um, I think in addition to having that, that relationship between the two departments is also kind of feeding off the last topic is documentation being able to actually populate the information that we can send the technicians out onto the floor and make them as efficient as possible doing their role. And this goes outside of the, the three, um, but I think also clear communication as well. So being able to communicate with the planners, with the technicians, and they could be on reactive topics of, you know, maybe not aligning with one of the SOPs, or maybe it's a recap of the activities that we did or the problems that we found. So then that way in the system, we're actually documenting all of our uh, discoveries actually processing that uh, work order. Love it. Stuart, anything to add? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, Joe, you're, you're right down the right path. Um, it kind of falls into three big buckets for me, right? There's the ability to forecast your work, right? Uh, you need to be able to look out, see your maintenance windows coming, see what's coming up in those tasks and have enough time to actually assess those. Um, if you're not identifying your high risk tasks, right, those tasks that you know, or you used a, a pump example, right? Uh, you're aligning a pump that could take, could take 20 minutes, could take two hours. You don't know. So that's one of those things that as you're looking through that forecast list, you're going to identify as a high risk item that could run your window over, right? So let's get that one started early. And then, you're, then now you're scheduling your work. Now you're really planning for that window. Um, so forecasting, really important. And then in the middle, that chunk of actual execution, it's all about your resources, right? Do you have your parts at your fingertips? Do you have those, uh, those detailed SOPs attached to any resources that you might need if something does go awry or if you get a little lost in your task list? Um, tools even, can you assign those tools out to that work order? Make sure that they're reserved for that window. Uh, and then, you know, you take it down a step further at the end, you got to review it all. You have to have somewhere to come back in, review the data from that window. Just like, like Joe said, come back. What worked? What didn't work? What should we have done differently? Did we take a little bit too long here? Why? Is that something we need to look at for the next window? Or is that something, you know, with some further, uh, further resources, we could have trimmed down and gotten better. So it's really this iterative loop, right? You have to forecast, you got to execute, you have to review it. So that the next time it comes around, you're going to have an even better forecast and looking at how that window is going to go. Love it. Love it. Love it. Now I got another question here. So this one, you know, we, I think George, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but 
how, the question is how to handle the planning within a small maintenance group where there is no planner. James, do you have any thoughts on that one? Yeah. Um, I actually had the esteemed privilege of being that individual once upon a time. Um, <laughs> my first role in planning, I wore the supervisor hat, the planning hat, and the storeroom hat. And I want to say we had 10 or 12 technicians overall. Um, it's a challenge. It definitely is a challenge with a small group. Um, what I would, what I would say is that, you know, I bucketed my day, I bucketed my, my day. So I set aside certain amounts of time for planning storeroom and supervisory activities. That was the way I could manage it. Um, what I had a tendency to do is I spent about three hours a day doing the hard planning stuff about an hour or two a day doing the storeroom purchasing stuff and the rest of the time out on the floor, either coaching people through some of those job plans, getting feedback on those and doing the supervisory things. I found that by bucketing the day it worked, but it is definitely a major challenge because you're trying to think strategically from a planning perspective, but you are pulled into the day-to-day -day tactical stuff, which is not an easy thing to do. Rob, um, it's, it's Cliff here, Rob. Uh, we have, at Urco, there are nine plants, and we have one planning, one planner. Uh, eight of our plants don't have planners. Um, and uh, it's all, it all comes back to, again, uh, my favorite word is culture and maturity. Um, we work with the guys, and in some of our plants, we have five people. That's our, that's our team. And, and they will do all of the planning and scheduling. Um, they have to be trained completely on the ins and outs of the, the CMMS. Um, they meet as a group with the operations people every morning to see if there's anything else. They don't really uh, vary uh, from the idea of having a schedule uh, as such. But when there are only five people and one's a mechanic, one's a, an instrument guy, one's an electrician, one's a pipe fitter, one's a welder, um, it's more a case of what jobs are we going to do? Uh, it is not where we've got 50 people, so we need to balance the, uh, the labor and make sure everything's done. They know what jobs are coming up uh, because they're running into the CMS and taking a look. They're able to kit their parts easily. Uh, what, what the routine is typically is for the last hour of the day, they'll kit for tomorrow. Um, but it's a mature group. This is not a group where they're used to being told what to do every day. They don't need constant pushing and um, they do it themselves. But uh, it depends on the, on the maturity of the group and how you grow them into that. We didn't start out so good, uh, but we've ended up pretty well where, uh, you know, we're, we're ending up with astronomic availability numbers and we wouldn't get those if it wasn't for the fact that these guys were doing an excellent job. But in a small group, you, you really, you know, you're planning for one yeah, and it works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't recommend people start off there for sure. No, no, no. <laughs> so here's a question, George. I know you, you kind of touched on it a little bit about, you know, with, with respect to the math, at least, is turning one of your mechanics into a planner. Now, what, what type of skills does a planner need to have? <laughs> uh, number one, they need to be thick-skinned because they're <laughs> going to get blamed for everything that didn't happen, even though they have nothing to do with actually executing the work. I, th I thought that was reliability people in general. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, it's both. <laughs> it, the other piece is they have to be extremely computer literate. So they have to make the CMS their best friend. And as much as planners that we pull out of the field want to be in the field, it's a massive mistake. They have to be the expert at using the CMMS, at capturing history, at building BOMs, at building canned job plans or, you know, building a job plan library. They've got a, most of the work we do is repetitive. So the more that time they spend capturing that information, the easier the planning position becomes in the future. And so they've got to shift their focus from I want to be in the field to I want to be the person that knows where everything is inside that CMMS. Yeah. James, do you have anything to add on that one? I think the ability to communicate well is important. Um, 
both from when you're working with expectations from operations, managing some of the scheduling, if they're wearing that planner slash scheduler hat, um, working through some of those priority questions that arise, um, but also being able to write effectively. Um, you know, some very simple guidelines that I refer to a lot, simplified technical English. You don't have to become an expert in it, but at least know the basics of technical writing. So as you put together these job plans, it's clear on what the expectation is. Um, it sounds silly, but I'll give you an example that I had occur to me. Uh, we're working with a facility um, and they're setting up their PMs and starting to write their PMs and that sort of thing. But they had a large part of their workforce that was seasonal and English wasn't their first language. So the one guy, newer guy on that maintenance team comes up, grabs a PM and it says, replace the filter. To me, that means you take off the old one, put the new one on. Well, to him meant you take off the old one, do the work, then you put the old one back on. It sounds silly, but that type of stuff can happen, especially if we have a younger, newer generation or less experienced generation doing this work. Um, that's an extreme example, but being able to write technically, I think, is a very important skill as well. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And I just want to, it kind of leads into the next question that I'm going to go skip to here is, as the demographics shift, you know, takes place over the next 10 or so years, who and how do you think we will schedule and plan for 2025 to 2030? Stuart, do you have any thoughts to kick us off here? Yeah, I mean, uh, the who is, the who and the how are, are two very, uh, very interesting questions. Um, but the who, is, as James just stated, is, is a completely new generation, right? That, uh, that idea of, of the guys that can, can walk a line and smell when something's going wrong, um, that's not really the, the skill set. Um, but the skill set that we are going to have in, at, by 2025 is people that have grown up with technology, Right. So how can you leverage uh, those two things to kind of meet in the middle so that, that the work's still getting done? Um, the reality is, you know, the, the maintenance workforce is, is an older workforce um, and there's less people coming up through, up through that system. Um, you know, it's, it's small. Um, so being able to make, maximize the, uh, the capability of those folks, um, get what they need at their fingertips is going to be key. Um, as far as the how for scheduling, we're going to automate as much as, of that as we can, right? Um, everybody's, everybody's talking about industry 4.0, connected sensors, uh, advanced scheduling, even AI and ML. Not that, you know, that's, that's still a little down the road and we're doing some of that, but how can we get that to their fingertips in the field so that that wrench time um, that George was talking about earlier is not, it's not 0.4, it's not 0.55, but somehow we can get that up to the 0.7 um, mark, right? That's kind of world-class best, best standard that we can be turning wrenches and getting those people what they need. Right, the idea that you can flip glasses on and you can see how to do that work before you actually have to go and accomplish it is, is this pie-in-the-sky idea that we are a lot closer to than a, a lot of people believe. Yeah, I've seen a few of those technologies, uh, I mean, in infancy form, but definitely that's going to evolve rapidly. Joe, do you have any thoughts on this question? Yeah, kind of piggybacking off the same as Stuart as well. Like, I, I think data is going to be a number one driver moving forward, and we're just going to start using data to make more decisions. But gathering that data, I believe, is going to become easier. We're seeing things like simplified sensors or, or sensors that you can essentially order offline and, and set up in, you know, in a couple minutes. And I think that technology is going to become more accessible to all levels of maturity of maintenance, so giving people an opportunity and exactly as Stuart touched on as well, the generation that's coming up is, is not going to have a learning curve when it comes to technology. Uh, that is going to be something that's kind of baked in. So I think there, that's going to be allowing us to use data, use technology to work smarter and become more predictive in the sense of, of that planning world. Rob, Rob's Cliff here. Um, an oh, we, example. Can see, we can see you, Cliff. <laughs> oh, you can see me. Okay. Um, just in case you thought it was somebody else. Um, he, I had a great example from St. Mary's Cement just outside of Toronto, um, moving with technology where a, a, a lady planner who admitted she was much more of a, a mother to the guys than a planner, um, but they were using technology. St. Mary's is a very large geographical site, and they have sensors set around all of the plants so that as a tradesperson walks into that particular area on his iPad, um, all of the work orders will come up for that area. Um, with them all prioritized and everything. So as they move into the area, uh, these work orders appear. And as they move out of the area, um, they, they disappear. 
So that's already, if they're going, you know, in a, a long journey and it, it could be a 20-minute drive uh, at St. Mary's, um, they, they've got all of the information when they get there and they can take a look at opportunistic work. Um, and that's, you know, the technology, it's, it's, it's here today. Uh, and, and they get their priorities for that area. So some interesting stuff out there. Cliff, don't tell my wife that because every time I walk around the house, my my list will get my honey yeah. list will be moving around. <laughs> yeah, George, do you have any? Do you have anything to add on that one? So we talked a lot about the technology, but we didn't really talk about what that means to the folks that 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 are planning and scheduling. And I think as machines can begin to self-diagnose and either write their own work orders or order the own the part. Um, that's going to shift the focus. You know, one of, one of the biggest challenges we see today is the administrative work it takes to manage the CMMS. And the more we rely on the tech, technological side of the integrations between our SCADA systems and our CMMS, the more the accuracy of those core records become. And I think one of the things that, you know, we should touch on is just how critical that's going to be. And so while we may say planning and scheduling today, later on, th these people are going to be basically DB admins. I mean, they are going to have to ensure accuracy if those integrations and that technology is going to produce fruit. Otherwise, it, it, it's going to be making wrong recommendations or ordering the wrong part. And then it's going to fall on its face because folks are going to say, well, this didn't work, right? So if we're not thinking ahead of time at what the administrative workload looks like, we may we may make mistakes along that path. Yeah, I, I love it. Now, James, any thoughts on this question? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the challenges I see in a lot of organizations now, and I think it's just going to get worse in the future, is having that individual write those job plans. Um, ideally, what are we using? Experienced craftspeople to write those job plans. In the future, we may not have that. Um, we may be relying on technologist or someone straight out of school who had, doesn't have that shop floor experience. So I think, you know, who and how we do it might change slightly, but I think we still got to focus on those fundamentals. We got to have good job plans. Yeah. It may tell us that this is the issue that's occurring. You know, here's the parts we need typically on this piece of equipment, that type of thing, but we still got to have that procedure in place. We still got to have those specifications. We still got to have someone writing those. So I, I don't want to forget about that because to me, that's eliminating a lot of issues that could potentially come down from the down the road. Did we install it incorrectly? Do we have the right parts to begin with? That type of stuff. So I think how and who and some of that's going to change in the future. I think it's, we still need competent, experienced people as planners in place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I just yeah, I just want to add a little bit on this this one. So. I mean, first off, in terms of sensors, AIs, shameless plug, next week I'm hosting a webinar. I believe it's next Thursday at the same time. Um, we got some great guests on to talk about AI and IoT and sensors and all that stuff. Now, on the other side of it, I just want people to be a little bit careful when you start embarking on these journeys with the AI and the IoT. Again, it's, it's like you can have all these sensors and it can tell you all this stuff, but you actually have to either do something with that information or as like James was just mentioning is you actually have to have somebody who can take that information and turn it into effective work. Otherwise, you just have either bad work getting done or you have data that doesn't go anywhere. So just FYI on that. Um, Got a question in the well, chat. Sorry, go ahead, Cliff. Yeah, just to, you know, it's, it's kind of come full circle to, to James's point because um, when James was running around in diapers, um, I was actually implementing one of the first CMMSs that were around in the, uh, in, in the UK. It was in 1972, and the computer was the size of a semi-truck. Um, but to get a job plan for that, we actually went out and time-studied maintenance people doing the work and that's how we got to this wrench time thing was because um, it didn't matter how long the job took if it took four hours uh, anything that was non-productive work was taken out and so it came back that the job was actually two hours long but um, 
what was required was that we note everything that they did. You know, every 30 seconds we'd be flipping back our, our stopwatches. And at the end of it, we'd have a job plan. And then we would take it to two other tradespeople and say, did they miss anything? Is there anything else they should have done? Was there anything else they should have done? So out of that, not only did we get a, a more accurate time for the job, we got a very, very good job plan, and we identified all of those issues that were biting away at our wrench time. And we were able to get into things like kitting and all of this, and I'm talking 40 years ago. Um, and we've gone full circle now. So yeah, it's very interesting um, how, how James described them, but you know, we need to get a really skillful guy to sit down and write it. We actually watched them do it and then got people to chip in to say, okay, yeah, yeah they forgot to do this, or if they had done that, or what have you. But um, yeah, the further ahead we get, the further behind we are. <laughs> and, and on that note, Cliff, like when you're, when you're going out there and you're trying to make your job plans better, like what, what should that feedback loop look like? I, I always go back to uh, running it by your tradespeople. I, I like to have that, that uh, the, the input of the tradespeople and, and, and have those put in. Um, I know everyone believes that, you know, the, the planner should be perhaps the best mechanic on the floor, but it's not something I subscribe to. It's, you know, we somebody that's really, really organized and can communicate and can work with and can get input from, um, because you're going to have a lot of different people who are the best at something and you want to get that input into them and round up that job plan. Um, you know, if you look at lean and things like, you know, single minute exchange of dies, it's where they do a, a study and they then give it before they becomes a, an issue job plan. They give it to someone to do, you know, a, a knowledgeable tradesperson and say, okay, go try that job, follow that job plan. Tell us what's wrong. Tell us where we could change all of those things. Uh, and, and then you can kind of round it out that way. Yeah, James, I know you have some thoughts on this one too, because we've talked about it before on one of the podcasts that we've done. Do you, have, do you want to share any of those? Yeah, no, I, you know, I agree with Cliff. You know, there's some aspects where they don't have to be the most technically savvy person, but they got to be able to communicate. They got to be oriented. But I still think they have to have a level of, um, expertise when they're going out and scoping the work, that sort of thing. I think once again, that's that balance we got to find when we find the people for these positions. Um, it's a challenge. Um, but yeah, some of those skill sets may change, but I think as long as we have skilled, competent people and we have processes in place, um, we can make it work regardless of how we approach it. It's just making sure we have that standard and system in place. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, I remember you telling me, James, that you were talking about when you issued new job plans, you would you would use some colored paper so people would realize the job plans new and you've made some changes. Do you want to share with that with everyone? Yeah, it's just, you know, if one of the challenges you find when you start developing good job plans or you're doing a lot of work uh, redeploying new job plans, um, your technicians have been used to not getting good job plans for a long time. Chances are they're not going to read them. They're going to throw them in the toolbox to fill them out later. They might not even look at them. Um, so what we did is we printed good job plans on a different color piece of paper, whether it's green, pink, whatever, to show as a signal that, Hey, this is an actual job plan. Read it, provide feedback. We'll fix it. Whereas everything else that wasn't to that level yet, we just continued on regular color paper until we made that full transition. It was just a visual way to get people to read, the, the, read the ones we invested in and get that feedback. And I know like all the maintenance guys love hot pink paper. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, I guess kind of maybe we'll go a little bit towards the CMMS side. Like Joe, when we're looking at feedback, like I know you guys have some places where you can put that feedback in the comments and it doesn't have to come in, in either like a dialogue or like, do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. Yeah. So for us, again, that communication piece is huge, especially if teams are coming previously from a world where they were going to a central place to get work orders or having come back to a hub and, you know, communicate the, the changes. So 
you know, the way that we drive communications on our couple levels on the actual work order level itself. So again, utilizing it to ask questions or at mention people to be able to pull them into a work order. So very similar to like a Twitter kind of motion. Um, so that's for back and forth. And then in addition to that, just providing actual recaps to make sure that documentation is there. If we ever go back and get an audit and we say, hey, well, how was this job done? We can essentially look in that log and see the activities that took place. In addition to the work order level, we also take it to the asset level. So again, there might be some historical activities that have took place prior or, you know, that a technician may need to know before they go out and start actually working on that or give them insight on what happened prior to that. So those are the two areas in, in actually in the CMMS system that we're documenting that uh, information in. Love it, love it, love it. Now, George, one of the questions we got was basically around KPIs or metrics for planning and scheduling and how they should look or evolve over time. Do you want to give us any thoughts on like where should people be looking at to start and then maybe how should they progress? Yeah, so the, the last thing I want to do is measure the end result, which is schedule compliance, right? The, <laughs> the first thing I want to do is document an actual process and build workflows and, and whatever statuses they need. So let's assume all that's in place. <laughs> at, at that point, you should be measuring behaviors. So for example, if you want to make sure that the planner is always looking at what comes into their inbox, knowing they might not you know, be able to go out in the field right away, depending on the volume of work that comes in. But if you want to know that they've looked at something, then give them a status to move it into within, say, three days. And then measure whether or not they're doing that. And then this way, you'll know they're familiar with what's in the backlog. You kind of gradually work your way up to schedule compliance. If you initially go right to schedule compliance, the organization figures out how to make schedule compliance, right? So we'll um, get there, and then baby. You, you don't know if, and then you don't know if the process is, is very good. So you want to measure the behaviors that sit inside the process and then move on. From a planning perspective, I am absolutely not a fan of measuring their hourly estimate against actuals. Yeah. There's too many factors that impact that. You should be measuring the, the, the cost of materials planned versus actually used. Did they get all the parts ready? And, and if they're doing that, as Cliff alluded to earlier, you minimize those trips back and forth to the storeroom and everywhere else. So, and that's where the real efficiency gains are. So you want to measure where the efficiency gains can be. And that's in trips to the storeroom. So I, I'm a big fan of parts before, parts after. Um, and if that's accurate, then at least you know when folks are going out into the field, they have what you thought they needed. <laughs> love it. Love it. Stuart, anything to add? Yeah, I, I completely agree with George. It's this idea of these KPIs and we throw these numbers and these targets in front of folks. And, and what we really need to be doing is looking and breaking that down into, into these metrics and the idea of leading and lagging metrics, right? Schedule compliance is Georgie's great example of a lagging metric, right? By the time that's there, it's a little bit too late. And unless you're measuring those leading metrics, right? You're just, somebody's going to game it. Someone's going to figure out how to get perfect schedule compliance. Tell you right now, I can get perfect schedule compliance and there's three fields in a CMMS that'll let you do it. Um, but if you're properly measuring your leading metrics, right, those, those leading indicators, that's really where you're going to get to it. And, you know, I, I actually talked with James on, on a podcast about this one a while back, but those leading metrics have to be, you know, what can you put in front of your guys that they can, imp that they can actually touch and feel and impact every day, right? If your leading metrics are still, you know, a couple, couple removes away, um, that's not going to mean something to their day-to-day, -day, right? If, if those parts of their polling is something that, that we're measuring, right? If those work, order com work orders completed are something that we're measuring, um, just those easy tasks, counting stats, easy ones that they can go put big old check boxes beside, uh, beside feel good at the end of the day, right? If you are putting the right leading metrics in front, you're going to get the right lagging metrics out. And if not, that's a process and, and a systems thing that, that you can go and, and take a look at as a maintenance lead or a supervisor. That's really where you need to be spending your time right? Making sure those leading metrics are good and then making sure that that's giving you the output you want on the lagging end. When we were yeah. at, at PNG, that was the main focus, right? My time at PNG, sure, I was held to KPIs, right? But I'm not coaching KPIs. When I'm talking to my maintenance guys, I'm talking to my operators, you're talking about leading metrics, right? What are those things that you can actually do every day to get the output that you want? So we got a few questions around the same, basically the same thing is, do you have any examples of leading KPIs for planning? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, that all goes into activity, right? Um, so if you're looking at a, if you're looking at completion, 
you want schedule compliance, right? Um, you're looking at your maintenance windows. You're going to have a list for that maintenance window. Um, in that window, how many jobs we get done, right? And that, that's more of accounting stat. Um, when you're going to, you're, George is talking about um, storeroom, right? So parts pulled versus consumed, right? Make sure the guys are thinking about pulling the parts that they're actually going to use, right? Returns is something we tracked. We don't want to be going back and forth to a storeroom. Um, the other thing was uh, response time. If you can get a, get a handle on, uh, on good response time too when we start talking about reactive, um, and it doesn't need to be like you're running to the machine ready to go. The idea is you're effectively prioritizing your work and making the time to get there at the, at the right intervals. Um, it's those kind of ideas that's really going to get you more effective on the back end when you start talking about schedule compliance and MTBF and those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love it. I mean, when I always talk about leading and lagging KPIs, I always use, you know, health and weight loss as my example because everyone gets it right. And so if, if my lagging KPI or my goal is to lose weight, my leading KPIs would be like, how many healthy meals did I eat in a week? How many times did I go to the gym? What were my, you know, like how many reps did I do or how many miles did I run or those types of things. And my lagging KPIs would be like the fitness I gained, the weight I lost, those types of things. And so, and, and for people asking about a, a source, the best source I've seen on KPIs, at least in our industry is from SMRP and mm. it's free. If you have this here, if you're part of the SMRP member, they have, it's like 200 and something pages of metrics it's got everything that you've got. Um, so definitely, yeah, definitely check that out for sure. Rob, so let me look, let me you give look you, like you got a thought there. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about um, the schedule compliance. I thought I'd give you my, my favorite story around <coughs> schedule compliance. Um, I was at a miner in, in um, a mining organization in Western Canada, and I had uh, all of the uh, operations people in um, you know, the production people, procurement people, and, and the maintenance guys and everything. And so I asked them, you know, sort of uh, give me some uh, ideas of their KPIs and schedule compliance came up. And I kind of looked at the uh, planner and schedule and said, you know, uh, whose who's, uh, measure is that? And he kind of said, yeah, that's fine. I said, okay, that's great. You know, sort of, uh, so let's assume that you can't make your schedule compliance. What are the, usually the issues? And he says, yeah, well, uh, sometimes we don't have the parts. And he says, well, you know, and other times, uh, you know, operations won't release the equipment. So I asked him again, and I said, like, um, whose measure is this? You know, this is the schedule compliance is not a measure of a planner and a scheduler. Schedule compliance is a measure of collaboration. It's how does an organization work together? You know, we look at breaking work. We look at all these other things that a planner and scheduler really has very limited control over. And yet, what's the measure for planning and scheduling? Schedule compliance. It doesn't work, I'm sorry. But it was interesting to see the procurement people and the operations of the, the production people just shrinking in their seat as we were talking about it. They just kind of were just shrinking and shrinking. And, uh, and that organization doesn't think of it that way any longer. They think of it as a, a measure of collaboration. Yeah, yeah, I think you see that a lot in, in KPIs. And uh, we did get a question in the chat, you know, from Hassan. He said, you know, some say KPIs could be misleading. Is that true? And, I mean, I think we, we have an example. Like, Cliff, do you want to just talk a little more about how they could be misleading? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, PM compliance. Great. Um, I really love that. What does that tell you? Uh, it tells you that uh, you handed out a bunch of PMs and you got a bunch of work orders back saying that they were done within the required time. Uh, does it tell you whether the PM was done sitting in a lunchroom? Um, does it tell you that the guy walked past everything and everything was okay? Uh, you know, that's the other, uh, that's the other bugbear is they they enter OK or a check mark. Um, but there's nothing there that shows you that your PMs are preventing or doing what they're supposed to, and that's preventing or mitigating failures. Um, but, you know, what's the most widely used PM metric? PM compliance. Um, it, it just doesn't make sense. Wrench time, we talk about wrench time again. You know, we talk about that. It really is uh, a measure of the culture of the organization. Uh, 
because we look at, okay, is the organization such that it wants to have, uh, you know, uh, kitting, that it wants to have uh, locked schedules and all of those sort of things. It's more of, of a culture than, uh, than a hard and fast planning and scheduling KPI, but everything comes back to culture with me. So whatever it is, it's culture. <laughs> So we'll, we'll get this last question in um, and then we'll, we'll have some time for plugs. So the question came in, how far and how broad should the involvement of planners and schedulers be with material availability and its relation to the warehouse? Where to draw the line in this responsibility with respect to kidding? Uh, James, do you want to start off with your thoughts on this one? Sure. So, I'm a big advocate of planners defining what parts are going to needed are going to be needed for that upcoming work. I would go as far as suggest that if I had my way, planners would never touch a phone to call a supplier or a vendor. Um, because if they're doing that, then they're not planning. They're not generating that work for the future. They're not being proactive. Now I understand there are certain circumstances where that may not be the best solution. For example, if we've never ordered a part before and we need to confirm what the specifications are, something of that nature, fine. The planner can have that initial phone call, sort out what specific part based on serial numbers and that it is, but then they provide all those specifications and send that on to storeroom or procurement to one, set up in the CMMS even as a non-stock number. So one, we never have to search for that information again. It's in our system. It's our history, our data. But then two, then they can take care of all the procurement side, getting the quotes, getting other, other uh, prices, that sort of thing. So to me, planners define what parts are needed on the work order. And then after that, it's the storm or procurement. Love it, love it, love it. Now, James, plugs. Do you have anything to plug? So, you know, mentioned it a few times, but the podcast, Rooted in Reliability. Rob, you've been on, Stuart. Cliff, George, you know, you guys have all been on, except Joe, I think you're the only one I haven't had on yet. So we'll have to make that, uh, that happen. Um, but Rooted in Reliability, new episode every Tuesday. Um, you can find it on all the usual places, just like Rob's Reliability Project. Absolutely. And, and yeah, check it out. Definitely check it out. We Also, you can check it out on Ascendo Reliability. You guys, you, James has a blog as well. So check that out and go to erudicio.com. You can find all their training platforms. George, anything to plug? Uh, yeah, sure, of course. So um, be on the lookout for that podcast <laughs> with James because we just got done recording that. Um, and, and certainly go to our website, go to YouTube, look up Reliability Experience. Uh, no E, so Reliability, the letter Experience. Um, and, and in Plant Services Magazine, you can look at uh, Captain Unreliability. We've got articles in there on a regular basis. We'll actually have a cover story in, I uh, believe, July issue or June issue. No, July issue uh, on CMMS very specifically. Awesome. And, and you can check them out, obviously, reliabilityx.com for anything there. And then, you know, obviously, George, you also have some stuff on Ascendo Reliability and you have a podcast that you, you've done a, a, a huge number on planning and scheduling. So they should definitely check that out as well. Stuart, Stuart, anything to plug? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, at Fix, we just launched our resource hub in the last couple of weeks, but something, uh, you know, is around the webinar train anyway. Um, something we have coming up uh, actually tomorrow at noon Eastern. Um, we have the first of our two-part series on uh, hot stops and cold starts. Um, it's something, you know, that our manufacturing base has seen a ton of issues with over the last little while, given, you know, the current situation. Um, we're seeing people shut equipment down hot and, and trying to start it up very cold. And, you know, as I'm sure all you guys know, that's, that brings a whole slew of challenges uh, to maintenance reliability folks. So we got two of our, uh, of our senior implementation guys on our team, uh, six decades of experience between them and maintenance reliability. And they're going to talk through best practices around, you know, how to get that hot shut down the best way you can to allow, you know, that cold start to go smooth. So that's a two part series. I think it's this Thursday and next Thursday at noon Eastern. So uh, by all means, check it out should be a great one. Awesome. And you can check them out, fixsoftware.com, fix, F-I-I-X. So just in case you, you missed it out. So Cliff, anything to plug? Um, yeah, people in processes uh, are moving virtual. 
Um, Jeff will be uh, running two, which what are normally face-to-face -face classrooms that we're doing it virtually, uh, one on planning and scheduling and one on MRR storeroom. And they will be taking place in the, uh, the next month. So just go on to peopleandprocesses.com if you've got an interest in one of those courses. Um, you know, we don't know how long this is going to, to be. So uh, the move towards virtual is, is one that most are making. And uh, so Jeff is going to give it a try. Um, and coming up also from PMAC, um, there are going to be a number of discussions around you know, the impact of COVID. COVID-19, so we will be looking at that. Um, and I will be in the third week of April, I will be talking about uh, criticality and what needs to be deferred and how can we make those decisions. So they'll be taking off as well. Awesome stuff. Joe, anything to plug? Yeah, definitely. So anyone that is looking for a CMMS system, definitely check out Upkeep uh, on upkeep.com um, in regards to just supporting your maintenance teams. For us, what we've really been focused on is really making the use of the end user of our technicians super simple because in return, what we're going to do from that is get all that data that we need to help make decisions inside our business. Um, in addition to that, kind of like everyone else is touching on, we are also releasing uh, you know a number of contents and series and help articles to really support the front line with dealing with what's going on and how we can proactively handle these situations. Awesome. I love that. And, and you can check them out at onupkeep.com to check that out. Now for me, plugs, obviously. So thanks. First off, thanks to everyone for joining us, George, James, Stuart, Cliff, Joe, thanks for joining me today and talking planning and scheduling and CMMS. It was pretty fun. In terms of that, find that Rob's Reliability Project podcast and all platforms that you can get it. It's, I think it's like 11 platforms now. So check that out and sign up for my newsletter, robsreliability.com. Thanks for joining us. We're wrapping up on time today. Last time we were, we were over, but we're wrapping up on time. So, you know, thanks, thanks everyone for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you learned a lot. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, thanks for having us, Rob. Thanks. Okay. Cheers. Okay, James, just taking my sweatshirt off now, James. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least unbutton it. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thanks everyone. All right, take care. Thanks, James. Bye, Thanks, George. Bye, bye. Yep. bye now. Thanks, Stuart.